Welcome to Evangel Church. Our mission is to bring people into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information, visit us at evangelchurch.com. Good morning, church. Praise the Lord. It's exciting to be here, of course, this morning, and I'm just so, so glad to just be a part of what God is doing here at Evangel. And first and foremost, I just want to say thank you to Pastor Chris and to all the deacons and elders and the leaders here at the church for just making me feel and my family feel so welcome and just a part. And I want to thank all of you, church, um, because you guys have been such a blessing. Everyone that I've met or run into has been so warm, so receptive, so kind, so embracing, and I just love that, and I'm so thankful for all of you. And I'm excited about what God is doing here at Evangel. I believe God is really doing something amazing, and I think we have yet to see the great things God will do. But listen, I want to let you in on something. Pastor Chris alluded to it. Next week, you do not want to miss next Sunday. Where's my choir at? Come on, choir. All right, we got some choir members here this morning. Next week, we are kicking off on stage this choir that is going to blow your socks off. Are you ready for this, church? I don't know if you're ready for this. I don't think you're ready for this. So I want you to encourage someone to come next Sunday. I'm charging you, challenging you to invite somebody and say, tell them this. Tell them, listen, my church has a choir, and they're going to blow the lid off the roof of this place. They're going to be like, nah, you're kidding. No, tell them, I'm serious. They're going to blow the lid off the roof of this place. So tell them that, okay? How many promise to do that? Yeah, you promise? You're in, you're in the house of God, so don't, you're promising, all right? But um, thank you so much, Pastor Chris, for allowing me the opportunity to speak God's word, and uh, it is a joy for me to do that. And I pray that you've been following along with us. We're about halfway through the epic Bible reading series that we've been going through. How many have been enjoying the, the, the readings through these last few weeks and, and the messages that have been preached? And I pray your faith is charged and stirred up and you're just encouraged to press forward. And this morning I'd like to read from the book of 2 Samuel chapter 6. And so what I'm going to ask is if you don't mind to please stand one last time. In honor of reading God's word, I want us to read God, God's word together. And I want us to just stand in reverence as we read his word. And it says in verse 1, 2 Samuel chapter 6. I think we have the slides up there. And uh, pray for that computer. There's some glitches there, but we're good. All right. So it says again. Actually, I'm so sorry. Wait, please pause. My bad. I want to say thank you to Jessica who came out from Queens. Um, she's just been such a blessing to me, her and her whole family. That's her family sitting in the front with her. So thank you, Jessica. And, um, you know, thank you to the whole worship team. The worship team's been amazing, right? Come on, can we give it up for the worship team? Just so you know, they work hard week after week to prepare. So please continue to pray for them and encourage them. I'm so grateful for them. All right, so verse 1, 2 Samuel chapter 6. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God who is called by the name. How many know that there's only one name? Come on, that's the name. The name of Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, the one who dwells between the cherubim. 
verse 3. And so they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill, accompanying the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. But then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of firwood, on harps, stringed instruments, tambourines, on cistrums, and on cymbals. Verse 6, when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Can I just pause there for one second? Because there's an interesting note here that it says that when the ark of God came to Nacon, it's this village that actually the word Nacon sounds like the Hebrew word that means stable, secure, steadfast, firm. Isn't it ironic that when the ark of God that was on a cart, being pushed on a cart, came to this place that was supposed to be steady and steadfast and firm and secure, that was where the oxen tripped up. Isn't it ironic that sometimes we think like we got it all together and then we could easily trip up? You know, there's a verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that says, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful lest you fall. We need to depend on the Lord for every step. Can you say amen? So verse 7 says that the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. And it says that David became angry. Have you ever been angry? Have you ever been angry at God? Listen, it's okay to tell the truth. I've been angry at God at times. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Verse 10. So David would not. David would not move the ark of the Lord with him to the city of David. But David took it aside into the of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. This morning, I want to speak to you from the subject of what will you do with his presence? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that we've been able to come into this house to freely worship you to freely lift up your name and exalt your name. And we thank you so much, Father, that your presence has been so evident, evident in our midst. God, I just pray that you would just speak to us today, that you would work in us, God, that this would be life-giving power, Father, through your word, not my words, but through your word, to give life and encouragement and strength and challenge us and charge us to draw us closer to you, God, because we need you more than ever before. So I pray, God, that you would just speak to us, speak through me. Father, let the church not see me, but they, they would see you, that they would hear your words and what you desire to say to them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, David, so much. So David wanted to bring God's presence to him. 
You see, David already here in 2 Samuel chapter 6, he, al he already established his kingdom. If you, when you read through the book of 1 Samuel, that is about Saul primarily, about Saul and his life and his reign as king. But Saul died, and now in 2 Samuel, the kingdom is now given to, to David. He is the man that God has chosen. And now David has established his kingdom and one of the very first things that David wants to do is he wants to bring back the very thing that represents the presence of God. So what does he do? He says, I want to bring back the ark of God. I want his presence. You know, this is what differentiated David from Saul. Because when you read in 1 Samuel, in chapter 14, there's a story where Saul and the armies of Israel were face-to-face -face with the Philistine armies, and, and they were afraid because they thought that they're going to be defeated. And Saul said, bring for me the ark. But you know what? Saul really was only wanting the, the ark of God to come back because he, want, he wanted victory for this battle. So Saul only looked at what he could gain from having the ark with him. He wasn't necessarily interested in his presence. All he was looking for was a gift. You ever see a little kid that will come up to you and just say, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. No, you have never seen that, right? No. Give me, give me. But you know what? That was kind of Saul's attitude. He was just like, God, can you help me out now? Like, come on, God, like I need something. And sometimes we kind of have that attitude, like, God, what do you have for me? We have to be careful because the Bible does say, come before him with your prayers, your petitions, your supplications. Absolutely. But when our attitude is, God, just what can you give me as opposed to, God, I just want to know you more. That's a very dangerous place to be. And Saul, that's what marked kind of his life. He was just looking what he can get out of it. You know, I remember uh, growing up when, um, when I was young, living here in New Jersey, we had some family members that would come visit our house. Uh, they lived in the northern part of the state at the time. And so they didn't come over that frequently. But whenever they did come over, I kind of would get bothered when they would come over. Um, it was some family members, they had little children. And um, I got bothered because I knew that they weren't necessarily coming or the kids didn't necessarily want to come because they wanted to be with us. But you know what? The first thing that they would do when they came into the house, they would say, can I have that? Can I have that? Can you give that to me? And it bothered me because they didn't want to hang out with us. They just wanted my stuff. And it really bothered me. They were just looking for a gift. But a lot of times that's how we are when we come into the house of God. Sometimes we are just like, God, can you give me this? God, can I have that? Sometimes God just says, can't you just come and be with me? Can't you just come and sit at my feet and worship me? So they were interested. They weren't interested in being with me and my family. All they wanted was our stuff. David, Saul was looking for a gift, but not David. David, the Bible says, it was a man after God's own heart. David desired God's presence, not God's presence. You get that? He desired God's presence, not God's presence. Too often, often, we look for what God can do for us rather than just looking for who God is. 
We already said it. He's the name above all names, the Lord of hosts, the one who dwells between the cherubim. All David wanted was his presence. I want to ask you, church, this morning, do you want his presence? Come on, turn to your neighbor and tell them, I want his presence. It's okay to talk to each other in church when I ask you to, okay? So David decided to bring the ark of God back to Jerusalem. To give you a little bit of backdrop, in the book of uh, 1 Samuel, chapter 4, we find that the ark of God was actually stolen from Israel by the Philistines. They captured it and took it. But in chapter 6 of 1 Samuel, the Philistines are quick now to return the ark of God back to Israel. Why? Because the ark of God meant nothing but devastation and death to them. People all around uh, all over Philistine were, that were maybe coming and touching the ark, God was striking them dead left and right. I mean, they were just falling by the wayside everywhere. And those who didn't die started getting tumors all over this body, their body. And they were just saying, let's get this thing away from us. So it says that the ark of God was there in, Phil, in the Philistine country for seven months. And then they put it on a cart and had some oxen pull it. They just said, listen, wherever this thing goes, it's probably where it needs to go. So just as long as it's not here. They got rid of God's presence because they just did not want to deal with it. So it says in chapter 7 of 1 Samuel that the ark came into Israel and the ark came to dwell in the home of a man named Abinadab. So it was in Abinadab's home. When you actually look at the history of it and look at how long it was there, it says that it was there for 20 years, but that was before Saul became king. Saul was king for about 40 years. And then sometime after that, before David became king, it seems like that there was a span of about 70 years that the ark of God was in the home of Abinadab. I mean, that's a long time. It was in his home for about 70 years. Now in 2 Samuel chapter 6, David decides to bring the ark of God back to Jerusalem. And verse 3 says in chapter 6 that David now puts the ark of God on a new cart. Man. Could it be that maybe he was thinking back to what the Philistines did? Well, they put it on the ark, so maybe that's the cool thing to do. That's what we do now. You know, I don't know. I don't know where David missed it. But we know, because as we know from reading God's word, the ark of God was not to be put onto a cart or pushed around. The ark of God was meant to be carried. And David somewhere missed it up here, and I don't know what it was. But it says that when the ark was in route, the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah reaches out his hand to steady the ark of God and strikes him dead. Now, you know, imagine if you threw a party, like, you know, at your house, and, like, you invited everyone to come. Man, we're going to have a great time. And then, like, someone does something, like, stupid, and then God goes, zap, and strikes them dead. Like, right there, done. Uh, I think that party would be over, right? I think you'd be like... Man, it doesn't get any worse than this. It's done. Call it quits. We out. Right? But that's what happened. God struck down Uzzah dead right there on the spot. Listen, you cannot expect godly results when you intercept God's process with human intervention. Let me say that again. You cannot expect godly results when you intercept God's process with human intervention. So what are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying this. God is God. You are not. Right? 
we're not God. Yeah, you can put your hands together. Thank God that I'm not God, right? Yeah, put your hands together for that. No, God is God. He's in control. Have you ever tried to help God out? It's as if, no, God, that's all right. I got this. I'm good. I could take care of this. I know I've done that plenty of times and made a mess of myself. We try to do things our own way, and then we expect God to put his seal approval on it. As if, like, all right, God, listen, I'm going to do this here. We make a mess, and then we say, all right, God, bless our mess. Right? It doesn't work that way. God has a process. He has an order. As a result, though, David becomes angry and afraid of God, and the Bible says that he would not move the ark of God any further. Why did God do that? Why would God disrupt such a great procession? I mean, the motives were there. It was great. Everything was in line. David, a man after God's own heart, this is God's man. And David wants God's presence to be with him. Perfect. Wow, this is great. David gets the ark out. All right, let's paste the ark on there. They start moving it. Zap, this guy dies. Like, why would God do that? Couldn't God just overlook something like that? Wouldn't it be just simple of God to say, ah, that's all right. He means well. But no. When you read in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, 1 Chronicles 13 through 15 is actually the parallel passages of this story that we're reading about. And it actually gives us a little bit more detail of what was going on. And when David realized that, man, we screwed up here. We messed up something. He got back with his advisors. I guess they prayed. They saw God. And it says in 15, verse 13, that they realized that they did not consult him about the proper order. David realized that they did not consult God about how were they supposed to do this. How many know that God is a God of order? And he has a process that has to be followed. So as a result... Uzzah struck dead, and David said, I'm not moving this thing any further until I figure out what's going on. He leaves the ark of God in Obed-Edom's home for three months. You know, sometimes when things don't work out the way we feel that they should, we settle for allowing God's presence to remain at a distance. In other words, we almost take it out on God. You know, sometimes things don't pan out the way we want them to, and rather than letting our first reaction being, I need to run to God, Jesus, what's going on? I really don't know what to do. A lot of times we push away from God and say, no, I'm not going to get to church. I, I'm going through stuff right now. I, I need some time away because I, I need to find myself or whatever it is. And we put God in an arm's distance. I'm not saying you don't love God. I'm not saying that you don't have him in your heart. I'm not saying that. But we keep God at a distance. All right, I'll come to church Sunday, but don't ask me to volunteer in the ministry. No, no, don't ask me to join the choir. I'm not going to do that. What? Auditions? No, no, no. I'm not doing that. No. We keep God at arm's length. But we see the blessing of God come on Obed-Edom's home while the ark of God is there. Why is that? Why do we see the blessing of God on Obed-Edom's home? I really believe it is because Obed-Edom really understood what the ark of God represented. 
and that was the presence of God. So let me ask you a question. It's interesting because why is it that the ark of God could remain in another man's home called Abinadab for 70 years, and there's not one mention of the blessing of God on his household? In 70 years, not one mention of blessing. And yet here in Obed-Edom's home, it's there for three months, and all you hear about is the blessing of God on him. Why was that? Why is it so evident? I believe that the answer is, is because you can be near his, pre his presence and yet still forfeit his blessing. You could be in the house with him and still miss out on what he has for you. Being so overly familiar and casual with God so that you forget even who he is. That he's divine, that he's sovereign, that he's holy, that he's God. But I believe Obed-Edom recognized God's presence was in his home. And so he decided to give him the proper honor that was due unto him. And as a result, God blessed him and his household. So when David realized that the blessing of God was on Obed-Edom, he said, man, I need to get God's presence with me. I need, I need to have him. I need his presence. And so now David decides to bring the ark of God back to him, but this time it's God's way. He's following God's orders. So David made preparations to bring the ark of God back to Jerusalem. And look at what it says in verse 13. It says, and so it was when those who were bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. So David got the Levites together. He said, guys, you guys have to carry the ark of God. All right, this is the way we're going to do it. You're going to carry the ark. And now let's get going to Jerusalem. Everyone's rejoicing. Everyone's praising God. This is awesome. Yes, we finally got it right. All right, let's go. Let's start walking to, to Jerusalem with God's presence. Six steps. Stop. Let's worship God. All right, hallelujah. Yeah, let's worship. All right, yeah, let's do some sacrifices. Great. This is great, David. Yeah, all right, let's go. Everyone's walking. Six steps later, David's like, stop. Come on, let's sacrifice another animal. And I'm sure maybe after like the third or fourth time, maybe the, the first two or three times, they're all like, yeah, this is awesome. But after about like 40 paces of this, stopping every six paces, they're like, dude, like do we have this many cows? Like really? Come on, David. But they kept going. They kept going. They kept going. I, I must imagine like they're probably like 12 steps away from Jerusalem. They're like they're right there. And David's like, stop. They're like, come on, man. Can we just... God knows. But David wanted to make sure that he was giving honor and reverence to God the way he deserved. You don't know how much your worship sometimes is going to cost you. You know that worship is going to cost you something? So the Bible says that salvation is a free gift. But the Bible also says that we have to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We have to work it out. It has to come with, a, with preparation. It has to come with, with our doing, of coming closer to him and drawing closer to him. You cannot come to God without appropriate preparation. Can I say something to you, church, as your worship pastor? Is that okay? Do I have permission? I want to say this, and I really do want to say it with a, a pure heart. This is why it's so important for us to get to church on time. Okay, thank you. I'm sorry. I know I'm stepping on toes. That's okay. I'm not, I'm not doing it on purpose. Yes, I am. 
It's important for us to get to the house of God on time. But pastor, you don't know, in the mornings it's really hard. I got my kids or I got to do this. I got to iron. My iron doesn't work and it's really tough. And, and then I got to stop for gas. And then I got to stop at Dunkin' Donuts because, you know, I got to get my coffee in the morning. And so, you know, pastor, and then we got to park all the way in the back of the parking lot. And then I got to come all the way in. So that's why I'm late, pastor. Look, I get it. But if you're going to worship God, if you're going to come before his presence, it's going to cost you something. It always costs you something. Even if that means you got to get up a little earlier, maybe iron the clothes the night before, whatever it is that you have to do to make preparations to get into the house of God, it's what you have to do. Because it's when we come together as a corporate body to worship God in one accord, God comes and meets us in his place. And I guarantee you, yeah, come on, church. I guarantee you, God has something in store for you when you honor him in that way. God, I want to get into the house of the Lord. It's good when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And the, the RJV, have you guys ever read the RJV? RJV is a Rick Jerusalem version. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord, dot, 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 on time. It's good when you get into the house of the Lord on time. You don't want to miss what God has for you. You don't want to miss the blessing that God has for you. That's why we, it's so important so that we can worship as a body together. This is the way we prepare ourselves. This is how we prepare to honor God. David, would you come on up and just begin to play? And it says, so David rejoiced before the Lord. I mean, now they're celebrating. They're all excited because they're sacrificing, they're worshiping, they're carrying the ark of God. Even though it's slow, they're getting closer to Jerusalem. They're on their way. They're so excited. And David, what he does, it's very interesting. He sa it says that David put on a linen ephod. A linen ephod was a robe that the priests wore. The priests were Levites. David was from the tribe of Judah. So what was a guy from Judah doing wearing the clothes from another neighborhood. He said, you know what, I'm going to put on one of those robes because that's what the priests are wearing. What do the priests do? The priests actually minister before the ark of God. They're always in his presence. And David identified himself not based on who he was or where he was from, but rather by who his God was. He put down his royal robe, which identified himself as a king. He set it aside, and he put on a robe that identified him as a minister before the Lord. You know what's great about David? David is an Old Testament character with a New Testament mindset. He understood the grace of God. He understood the presence of God. And, you know, sometimes we identify ourselves based on maybe where we're from or what group we belong to. And you know, sometimes like that's cool, but it really doesn't make a difference. You know, I'll say I'm Ukrainian, but what difference does that make in the eyes of God? Well, I'm African American or I'm, I'm Haitian or I'm Puerto Rican. You know, that's great. We should celebrate where we're from, but our identity from where we come from does not identify who we are in Christ. Some will say, well, I'm Baptist. Well, I'm Presbyterian. Well, we're assemblies of God. You have to say God, like real low, you know. But how many know in heaven there's no break or division, no groups or culture or ethnicities. There's only one. 
And that one is the blood-bought sinner. One washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. How many are glad that you've been bought by the blood of Jesus? You're no longer the same who you used to be. You're not identified by what you've done in the past. Now you're covered with the blood of Jesus and you are a new creation. No longer the same. He's made you new. You're a child of God. Can you say amen? We're a we are children of God. David recognized who he was and he knew his God. That's why David was known as a man after God's own heart. So we see at the tail end of this chapter a few things. Verse 14, and I want you to notice the different responses here. It says in verse 14 that David danced before the Lord. Man, he got his dancing shoes on and he was ready. I got my dancing shoes on today. You like that? And he started dancing. He did not care what people thought or said. He did not care. He danced before the Lord. It was for him and him only. He could care less what he looked like. Well, David, you're a king. You shouldn't be doing that. Well, no, no. I'm a child of God, and I'm dancing before my king. Right? And he danced before the Lord. Verse 15 says, and the people shouted. They all joined in. They saw what David was doing. How many know that your praise is contagious? Right? David is dancing. The people are like, all right, I want in on this. And they start shouting and rejoicing. And they're having a great time. And it was awesome. And verse 16 says, but Michal, which was David's wife, despised David in her heart. Man, that's rough. How do you go home to that? After church, after you got your praise on, and now your wife is like despising him in her heart. It's obvious that Michal did not approve of her husband's conduct. It's unfitting of a king to act that way. You're being undignified. You can't be doing that. Why are you doing that? Why, are you, why do you go to church? And you ever have people say to you, why do you go to church? Why do you go to that church? Why do you serve Jesus? Oh, don't even tell me about Jesus, right? Why do, has that ever happened to you? It's because people don't understand what the presence of God is. When you've come encount when you've encountered the presence of God and you've been changed by his power, you can't wait to get into his presence. But David responds to Michal, regardless of how she's responding towards him. And I believe that the way he responded identifies for us some very key points that make all the difference. So look at what it says in verse 21. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord. In other words, he's saying, I wasn't dancing for you anyway. It was before my Lord that I'm dancing. He's the one that makes all the difference for me. It was before the Lord. And then he said, who chose me instead of your father? I love how he puts that little dig in there. Right? No, God chose me, not your dad, all right? Let's get it straight. All right? Your family, I don't know what happened. They're all screwed up on that side. You're all weird. But you know what? No, but he understood 
that his qualification came not because of a, a heritage or a lineage or anything like that. It all was because God appointed him. He knew God chose him. And he said, God chose me, appointed me ruler over the people of Israel. And then he says, therefore, I will play music before the Lord. In other words, David made a decision. He said, you know what? Regardless, I choose to worship. I'm dancing before my king, my God. He chose me. And guess what? This is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to get my praise on the best way I can. I'm going to honor him with all that I've got. And then verse 22 says, and I will be even more undignified than this. In other words, he's saying, you ain't seen nothing yet. You think this is crazy? Just wait till I actually have the ark of God in my house 24-7. And I'm going in with God. You better not stop me. You ain't seen nothing yet. He's saying, I'll be even more indignified than this because it doesn't matter. My worship is not for you. It's for him. He's honored by it. He's pleased by it. He's pleased when we come to him with all of our hearts, soul, mind, and strength. Come on. Give it everything. And then he said, and I will be humble in my own sight. But as for those maidservants of whom you've spoken, by them I will be held in honor. Isn't that something, though? Mikal's seemed to be more concerned about what other people would have think about her husband's praise than even the condition of her own heart. And a lot of times we can find ourselves in a place where we criticize how people worship God or serve God or what they're doing for, for the Lord, and we'll say, but you know what? They're not going to appreciate that. Why go to Guatemala? Are you really going to change anybody? And we have to be careful because guess what? We can find ourselves in a place where our hearts are not in the right place. And so these three things that I see in these two verses. First, David recognized that his worship was for the audience of one. He danced before the Lord. It was for his God and his Lord and him only. Secondly, David understood that just because of God's mercy and God's grace, that's why God chose him. It wasn't because maybe he was overqualified to be king. It wasn't because he was this fabulous person per se. But out of God's grace and mercy, the Lord chose him. David understood that. And finally, David made a decision to worship the Lord regardless of the cost. That was David's response to his presence. But Michal's criticism, her complaining to her husband, saying, come on, David, you shouldn't be doing this. You know what the result of her, her criticism was? The Bible says that at the end, Michal was barren till the day of her death. Her criticism actually produced death within her. No life came from her. So I ask you today, how will you respond to God's presence? Are you going to be like the Philistines who almost didn't know what to do with the ark of God, and they just felt like God is just out to get you, 
uh, I just, I don't, I don't want anything to do with it. Let me just get rid of it. Are you going to be like Abinadab who maybe was so familiar with the presence of God. He was near the presence of God, but he forfeited God's blessings because of that familiarity. Or will you be like Saul? You like God's presence because you like the presence. I like the perks. I like what he can do for me. So guess what? I'll hang out. I'll hang around. Have you ever been around somebody that's, that, that is overly ge generous? Yeah, I want to be his friend. Why? Because you got stuff. But do you just want to be with him? Do you just want to be with her? Saul only wanted to be around the presence of God for what he can get out of it. Or will you be like Uzzah that feels like, you know what? I need to help God out with this situation. Let me, let me put my hand in this thing. Or will you be like Mikal, criticizing the worship of others because you feel like it's too undignified? That's not the way we do things. Or will you be like David, who's willing to lay everything aside in order to worship our God? I don't know about you, but I just want his presence. I'll be like David and say, you know what, I'll be more undignified than this. Sometimes I know people are like, well, why do you jump so much on stage? I'm not even a good jumper. I'm not, forget about dancing, forget that. This is a white boy on the outside. But I'll jump because that's the way I want to express my worship unto God, and I'll give him the best that I can because all I want is his presence. And I want to charge you, church, because I guarantee you that as you lay aside all your your inhibitions and your self-consciousness and just say, God, I'm going to give you all that I've got, I promise God has a blessing in store for you. Because anytime you give honor to God, he has something in store for you. So I'm going to ask you all to stand. Because this afternoon, as we're going to conclude, I want us to conclude a little bit different. We will um, have altar workers down here at the front once we conclude. But I want us to walk out of this place rejoicing in the Lord. Is that okay? Come on. How many are glad that you are in the house of God today? Can we worship him this, this afternoon? We're going to do a few more songs, a, few, a couple of songs before we dismiss. And I want to encourage you to worship like you've never worshipped before. This is your opportunity to Tell somebody next to you, come on, give me some room. Because I want to worship God. We've come into his house, and we're going to lift up his name because he deserves it. Can you say amen? amen? How many are ready to do that? All right, so I'm going to go here. And as we get started, I want you guys to clap, dance, shout, do whatever you have to do. Listen, I'm not looking for just an outward ex expression. I want your heart to be fully engaged with what God is doing. Has God been good to you? Come on. He deserves all the praise. Come on, church.